He is risen. He is risen I'm going to read this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As you find that, you can stand. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as if to one untimely born, He appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles, who am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we're even found to be false witnesses of God, because we witnessed against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ will have perished. If we have only hoped in Christ in this life, we are of all men most to be pitied. I'll pray. Lord Jesus, we again are so grateful, as has already been said and sung, that you gave yourself for us, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him, receive him, believe in him, would have eternal life. And we thank you, God, for this gift that you've offered to us, just merely a gift, nothing we have to do, just receive in faith. Thank you that it has been accomplished. All the work that needs to be done has been done. And all we need to do is to say thank you for what you have accomplished on our behalf. Sins paid for. The separation that we have been born into, um, taken away, and we've been brought into unity with you. Your very spirit indwelling us. And we thank you, God, that we can trust you and know that you are the very means for living life in this day that you've given us. We ask that you would be exalted and that in all that, is, that we are doing and will yet do in this day, that it would be to the praise and honor and glory of Jesus. In his name, amen. You may be seated. Great to be back with you on this special day. Sorry I wasn't here last Sunday for the testimonies, but I watched them and um, thought, wow, um, Nico can preach. Man, alive. He, really, he was just getting after it last Sunday. That was great. Um, and all the testimonies, just wonderful. We, as was said last Sunday, one of the reasons that we have the testimony Sunday is because we don't want to just preach about Christ being alive, but he is, in fact, alive. 
and he lives in each of those who have placed their faith in him for salvation. And that is no empty statement. It is um, more significant than anything I could ever impact, um, unpack, and, um, and it, it is the, the hinge on which all history turns that Christ came into this world, lived a sinless life, gave himself for us, and rose again from the dead. It is what intersects time and eternity, where God stepped into, this, into time and lived his life and giving himself for us, and as I said, rising again from the dead. One thing that it does, and you know, you think about what is the significance of this day, for those of us that have placed our faith in Christ, it is hugely significant. As we've already said many times through the songs and through the scriptures, it gives us hope. We know where, where um, we are headed. We know um, the means for living this life. We know that we will stand before God in eternity and we will be immediately accepted and embraced as his own simply because we receive the free gift of life. But another thing that it does is for those who have not put their faith in Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ puts all mankind on notice. It truly does. It is God's simple yet profound statement. There is life after death. And to deny such is to be an absolute fool. The tomb is empty. It is a historical fact. As we read here in this portion of 1 Corinthians 15, more than 500 people saw him alive from the dead. Acts tells us that he appeared for 40 days, appearing to many during that time. Those that wanted to silence the fact that the tomb was empty simply spread lies, but the tomb was always empty and the liars never presented a corpse, which is all they had to do to disprove the resurrection of Christ. And so as I said again, it put, it, the resurrection puts mankind on notice. To live life as though there is nothing after this is the ultimate folly. We will all stand before God one day. And the only thing that we'll, we will have to respond to is what did we do with Jesus? What did we do with the knowledge that he lived, died for our sin, rose again from the dead, and what have we placed our hope? And if our hope is in anything other than Jesus, we, are, um, we will be gravely disappointed. Paul says in Romans that those who place their trust in him will never be disappointed. But those who have trusted in anything else will be gravely disappointed. I want to just step through some of the points here in 1 Corinthians 15. It's an entire chapter de dedicated to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want to just make some other just um, summary points about Christ's death and resurrection. In these verses, the first part of this chapter that I read, it, it just points out to the historicity of the gospel, first of all, the eyewitnesses that saw it. It is an undeniable fact. Paul could actually say in his day, most of the people who saw Christ alive are still alive today. Go check it out. Go ask them. They will tell you. They not only saw an empty tomb, they saw Jesus raised from the dead. An absolute verifiable historical fact. And then he goes on and he says that it is by um, his life that we receive grace, and it's a transforming grace. Paul says, I am not what I was. I was once one who persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. There is a transforming life of God 
which we enter into the moment we just say, Jesus, I understand what you are. I understand what you have done, that you gave yourself for me, a sinner. And I receive that in simple, humble gratitude, saying thank you for paying for my sin, something that I could never have paid for. And as we receive that gift of eternal life, God's grace immediately becomes operative in us. It's not just a doctrine that we passively receive, but it's something that God is active working, actively working in us to make us something other than what we were, new creatures in Christ, born again by the Spirit of God from above. And His grace is transforming us, bringing us into conformity to Him. So then he goes on and he says, if it's not true, then we are all men most to be pitied because we're living a life with a hope of a future when in fact if there is no future then we've lived a life to be pitied but there is the resurrection and there is the hope of a future and therefore we are not to be pitied because we're living knowing that Christ is alive he says in verse 20 but now Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who are asleep he has been raised from the dead for since by a man came death, and we know that's true, by a man also came the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers up the kingdom um, to God the Father, God and Father, who, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. He's already conquered death. He's already risen victorious over death. But death continues to exist until he comes again when he will ultimately even uh, put out of existence even death. He will no longer have any impact over us. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him, that being the Father. When all things are subjected to him, the Father, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be on all. He's just simply saying God makes everything right. Everything is in rebellion. Everything is in disorder. Nothing is functioning as God has intended, but the resurrection tells us that this is the first step to God putting everything right. And the day is coming when everything will be functioning again as God intended. No one will be living in rebellion. No one will be resisting God. They will either have been, been judged and spend their eternity away from the Lord, or, they, or all will be put right because of what Christ has accomplished in conquering death and rising from the dead. And then he speaks here about the impact that his resurrection has on our lives. And he says, because Christ is alive, I don't live as though this is all that there is. He says in verse 30, why are we also in danger every hour? I protest, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? And if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, and for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. He's speaking here to Christians. 
And he is saying, there's a reason. You look at our lives, and why are we encountering danger? Why have we allowed ourselves to be persecuted? And he says, because we are simply claiming that Jesus is, a, is risen from the dead. And that simple message that Christ is alive has resulted in all of this persecution. Apparently, Paul even had to fight with wild beasts at Ephesus. We don't know if they're lions or dogs or whatever, but he was put into the arena and, and put out there to be mauled. Um, and lived through it. And he says, why would I have done that? All I would have had to do was recant and say, Jesus is not raised. It's a lie. But he says, it is the truth, and I can't recant of it. And I'm willing to just to forfeit my life for the truth because it is the truth. And if there is no future, what am I doing? If this life is all that there is, then you might as well just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That would be the way to live. But because Christ has raised from the dead and all mankind has been put on notice, that is not the way to spend our lives. But now we live with a, with a goal in sight. This life, this physical existence is short, it is temporary, and there is an eternal weight of glory waiting for us. Do not be deceived. Those, even among the body of Christ, who are living their lives as though this is all there is, they are bad company. Good company are people who live their life in view of the resurrection. Every day they know, they live their lives saying, this is not all there is. This life is not about me. It's not about my happiness. It's not about my fulfillment. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ and spending eternity with him. And when a Christian is no longer living in view of the eternal, living in view of the resurrected Jesus Christ and his power and his enabling, then that Christian has become bad company. And bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded. Stop sinning because Jesus is alive. He is risen from the dead, and because he's alive, I can live for something other than myself. And I even have, by his grace, his life working in me, the power not to sin. In the next part of, this, of chapter 15, he talks about the difference between the physical and the spiritual. And the physical body will not be raised a physical body. It will be raised a spiritual body. It's the same body, but it's raised, it's changed, it's not the same. It will no longer be perishable. It will be imperishable. And he speaks of the glory of that body and, 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 the, and the significance of it. And then in verse 50, he says, Now, brethren, I say... Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall not all die. But we shall all be changed. Some people will be alive when Christ comes again. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on the immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, this body will one day put on the imperishable. The mortal will become immortal. 
And then the saying will come about, where is your sting, O death? Death is swallowed up in victory. Only the believer can say this. And I've been, it is my, has been my privilege through the years to many times um, be with people at or near their, their death and to see Christian people slipping peacefully and joyfully into the presence of their Savior. This truth, this scripture is absolute truth. There is no sting of death for the Christian. We can look forward to the passing from this life into the next because of our confidence, our hope that we have, because Christ has paid for our sin. He has risen from the dead and absent from the body for those who have placed their trust in him is presence with the Lord. Therefore, because Christ is alive, and we don't have to live as though this life is all there is. We can be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our toil in the Lord is not in vain. It occurs to me as I was just driving in this morning from comfort, and spring's a beautiful time of year. It's always everybody's favorite time of year. Everything's turning green and just wonderful. The air's nice and cool. It hasn't gotten hot yet like it will we love spring. It's beautiful. And I think as beautiful it is, there's no way that God can adequately fully express in creation his magnificence, his glory. And I think about the, the death and resurrection of Christ and all these scriptures that have been given to us. And really all the Bible is focused on this point, that he was going to come, and he did come to die for our sins and rise again from the dead, that we might be, be, have re, um, union with him reestablished. All of Scripture points to this one thing. And yet when you actually read the historical account in the Gospels of Christ's death, it is so understated. It's not embellished. It's not exaggerated. It just You read the account, and it, and it says they, they crucified him. And, though, and just, just simple words and, and, and simple sentences. And, and then the same with the resurrection. They went to the tomb. They found an empty tomb. And I think if I'd been writing this, knowing that this is the culmination of what all of history has been pointing toward, I would have used a lot more words. I would have got out my, thes my thesaurus, can't even say it, thesaurus, and just looked up all the big words I could find and try and, you know, and, and just want to just make this thing as big as I possibly could. Words won't do it justice. And God has, has purposely, it would seem, almost understated the significance of the death and resurrection of Christ so that we wouldn't focus, perhaps, on the language, on the liter literary quality and poeticness of it, but that we would just simply focus on the truth of it. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into this world, gave himself for us, rose again from the dead so that we could have union with God. And I think about it, and, and I think there's, there's several things um, that all these passages, scriptures, these truths, they point to. One is that our number one fear, because of the resurrection, is dispelled. And the number one fear that any person has is death, if we're honest. And we're pretty good at spending much of our lives not thinking about it, not talking about it, trying to ignore it. We certainly don't want to be around anybody that's dying. It's just too uncomfortable. We don't have conversations about it over the, 
over, you know, while having a cup of coffee with somebody, what comes next? We'd rather not talk about that. That's just too serious, or that's just not fun talk, and life is all about having fun, right? But our number one fear is dispelled through the resurrection of Jesus Christ if we place our faith in him. It is no longer a crippling, paralyzing, all-consuming fear as it should be. But if we place our faith in him, death is no longer a fear. It has lost its sting. It has been swallowed up in victory. Also, our number one barrier between us and God is removed because of the death of Jesus Christ. The resurrection does not accomplish the removal of that barrier. The death does. The resurrection is just God's exclamation point that the death took away the barrier. There is no longer any need to have to pay for our own sin because the barrier between man and God is his sin. And we would never be able to adequately pay for our own sin. It cannot happen. You can't be good enough. You can't try hard enough. You can't sacrifice yourself enough. Jesus has paid the price. John the Baptist exclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The sin has been paid for. The sin has been taken away. Colossians says the certificate of debt against us has been canceled. He will not use our sin against us. He will not bring it up against us. We have passed out of judgment into life. There will not be judgment in terms of our person, our works, yes, will be judged, but we pass out of judgment into life. And we have complete access to, to God granted, unhindered, unconditional, anytime, without reservation, we can come before God. We don't have to clean up our acts first. We simply come on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ. And we can come boldly into his presence because Christ has removed the barrier. Hallelujah. Our number one fear is dispelled, the number one barrier has been removed, and our number one problem has been solved. And that is alienation, separation from God. It is removed. We now have union with God, oneness with God, unity with God. This is what we need. We no longer have to live as fragmented, alienated, isolated individuals. And we all sense that in our beings, that something keeps me from being one with others. Jesus Christ came to bring us into union with himself, and on the basis of that union, we can be one with others. And it's an amazing gift that he's given us. Every person cries out in their soul to have, to have union, what we celebrate this morning, communion, to be at one with others, to be, at, to be at, at, at one even with our God, our creator. And Jesus has accomplished this through his death and resurrection. John 17, the high priestly prayer of Christ is just one statement after another where Jesus is saying, Father, make them one with us even as I am one with you. The number one fear is dispelled. The number one barrier has been removed. Our number one problem, alienation, separation from God is gone. And our number one need is fulfilled. And that is life. We need life. You realize how many times in the Gospel of John, Jesus spoke of this most, most basic need. We think, well, I have life. I'm alive. I was born alive. I'm not dead. And Jesus would say, no, you are dead. 
You were born with physical life, but you were born separated from God, and you do not have life in yourself. When Adam sinned, at that moment, all mankind lost its source for living. And from that moment on, all mankind, the only source they've had for living has been themselves. And so every person lives his whole life from one source, his own resources, his own self. And his whole life is a self-absorbed, self-sustaining existence, which God never intended for the creature. And so Jesus burst onto the scene, and in the Gospel of John, in statement after statement, he says, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. In John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. He is the light that is the life of men. In John 3, 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son does not see life, shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. In John chapter 4, Jesus spoke to the woman at the well and said, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst but the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. In John 5, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. You search the scriptures because you think in them that you have eternal life, and it is these that bear witness of me, and you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. On and on, John's saying, Jesus is saying in the Gospel of John, you, ha- you need life, and I've come to give you life. And the resurrection proves that he has that life. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger And he who believes in me shall never thirst, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh." In John 7, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. On and on, I just, there's so many verses here that speak of the, of the life that Christ came to give to us, and we have no life apart from him. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In the purpose statement of the Gospel of John, many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This is Easter Sunday. If you don't hear the gospel on Easter Sunday, something's not right. And I hope you're hearing what I'm saying this morning if you have yet to enter into a personal relationship with God. You do not have life. You are living from yourself. God never intended for this. Are you tired enough? Are you weary enough? Are you exhausted enough to say, God, I don't want to live another day with no other thing to live from than myself. I am bankrupt spiritually. I am dead spiritually. I don't want to live another day alienated from you. I don't want to have to live another day in fear. I don't want to have to live another day with a barrier between me and you. All you need to do is recognize that Jesus has dispelled all fear, taken away the barrier, solved your number one problem, and is offering you life. And you come to him and you just say, Jesus, thank you. I'm, my trust is in you to do what only you can do, and that is to save me from my sin and from myself. And he does, and he will. No one who placed their trust in him will be disappointed. It was on Easter Sunday, as many of you know, that I received Christ in Easter Sunday night after church when I was 10 years old. So that was like 30 years ago. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> You know, that pastor did not do a very good job that Sunday giving the gospel. In fact, I don't think he did. I don't think he ever talked about why Christ came, why Christ died. I don't think he talked about the significance of the resurrection. But God used him. All he really talked about that I recall is that how much Jesus suffered for us. I don't even think he said Jesus suffered because he loved us. He just went into the gory details of how, what it involved for Jesus to die on the cross for us. Well, it was all my heart needed. Because I didn't need anybody to tell me I was a sinner. I knew that. And I knew that Jesus was the Son of God. And I knew that he had done all these things, even though the pastor didn't mention them. But what I didn't realize was how much he loved me. And somehow my child's heart at 10 years old to understand all that he suffered, he suffered for me because he loved me. That I had never heard before. And that night, I, I maybe, I don't know, it, it seems like it was, might, might have been the first time I ever really talked to Jesus. And I didn't know how to say, Jesus, I trust you. All I knew to say was, Jesus, I want you to love me. And, and I didn't hear an audible voice, but in my heart before the Lord, I heard him say, I do love you, and I will love you. And I knew at that moment that I was his. 
Never been the same. There have been times I've doubted his love for me. And many times that I've lived from myself again rather than from him. But I've never doubted that I belong to him. Went to school the next day in the fifth grade and found my two best friends individually of each other and tried to explain to them what happened to me. I had no idea what to say. But I grabbed my best friend by the shoulders. He was bigger than me, so I had to reach up and said, I've got to tell you what's happened to me. He said, what? I said, I don't know. <laughs> he, he, he was very concerned for me. And I went and got my next best friend. He was my size, grabbed him by the shoulders, and got to tell you what's happened to me. What? And I said again, I don't know. So now they think, you know, maybe they should report me to the authorities or something. So I, I don't, I, but I didn't know how to say what I knew was true. My sin has been removed. And I now am a child of God's. I belong to him. I did nothing. I just said, Jesus, I want you to love me. Again, understanding that I'm a sinner and understanding I have no life, understanding I have no relationship with him. I can make no claim upon him. I can make no demand upon him. All I can do is just say, I'm here. Would you love me? It's not complicated. Faith is not a hard thing. And faith is not even something we do. Faith is simply trusting him to do something. That's why I can't take credit for faith. Because my faith doesn't save me. Jesus saves me. It's not a prayer that saves me. It's not my faith that saves me. Christ saves. And all he wants us to do is say, Jesus, save me. And only the Savior gets credit for saving not the man, the woman, the boy or girl that said, save me. Our most basic, crying, fundamental need is to have life because we have no life apart from him. Just existence. And once you've received that life, now everything changes. It's not just a ticket to heaven. Praise God we get to go to heaven. Praise God the sting of death is lost, the death has lost its sting. And now there is only victory. And yes, absent from the body is present from the Lord. The fear is gone. Praise God. But we have so much more than a ticket to heaven. We have Jesus. And Jesus now lives in us. Do I fully understand that? No. But I know. I am not what I was. And I know I am no longer separated from God. And I know that God who raises the dead is more than adequate to live this life that I cannot live. He enables, he empowers with his own life to live this life. This is why Paul would say, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because Jesus is alive. His presence in us makes our life, because it's his life, an indomitable life. 
If his life can't be conquered by death, then his life in you and me can't be conquered by circumstances. It is why Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 4, we are afflicted, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but we're not despairing. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. We always are caring about the dying of Jesus in our bodies. That the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. We are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Then he gives the therefore. Because his life is a conquering life, a life that has conquered death, and his life is in us to conquer circumstances. That doesn't mean we don't have, as he said, we're not afflicted, we're not despairing, we're not forsaken, we're not struck down. We are. But somehow we continue to live. And it's because of his life is an indomitable life. Therefore, Paul says, we do not lose heart. But though the outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For a momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. In 2 Corinthians 1, he says, We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, which we, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So Christians are not exempt from trial. In fact, we may go through the greatest trials so that the resurrection of Christ would be on great display as people look at our lives and say, something supernatural is going on there. I can't understand how a person can be going through such circumstances and yet be immovable, steadfast, abounding in the work of the Lord, how they can have hope and even joy in circumstances that ought to be crushing, but they're not crushed, where they ought to be filled with despair, but they're not. They ought to be, be, be destroyed, but they're not. What's the answer? There's a life in us that even death can't conquer. Galatians 2.20 favorite verse for many of us. It was already recited this morning in our Easter sunrise service at His Hill. I have been crucified with Christ. So it's not just that He died for me, but I died with Him. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Praise God. What did we lose? What did we give up? Broken humanity trying to make it through life on its own. It is no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. Now I have life. And the life I now live in the flesh, in this body, my humanity, I live by faith in him. That's the resurrection and its significance. You no longer have to live from yourself. You can now live from someone other than yourself. You live from Christ. Dear Christian, Jesus is alive. 
Are you living from yourself? Or are you living from faith in him? The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in Christ who gave himself up for me, the Son of God. If you realize all through that verse, and I only recently just was just made fresh to me to realize that powerful verse, it speaks of Christ, Christ, the Son of God. It never uses his personal name of Jesus. And I think because God doesn't want us to focus on, on his humanity when he's talking about all that he is able to be and to do in us. He is God, the Christ, the Son of God, and he is more than adequate to live this life. He has conquered death. Can he not live in you and me? I come across these quotes sometimes that sting when I read them, and so I think, I need to write them down in my Bible. So I've got all these things written in my Bible, stinging quotes. They're not all stinging, but some of them are. Because I think I need this. From Oswald Chambers, Beware of hearkening back to what you once were when God wants you to be something you have never been. There is no condition in life in which we cannot abide in Jesus. But this one, beware of worshiping Jesus as the Son of God and professing your faith in Him as Savior of the world while you blaspheme Him by the complete evidence in your daily life that He is powerless to do anything in and through you. That stings. Jesus is alive. And that is more than a ticket to heaven. He lives in those who have placed their trust in him. You have eternal life. His life is far greater than death, far greater than the circumstances of this life. And if I live a life that, that is completely lacking in, of any evidence of his power, of his resurrection, I am blaspheming him. He is a good God, and he loves us with all that he is. And giving his son for us is his constant proof of his love for us. And the fact that he is raised from the dead means that I don't have to live a single moment from myself ever again. But I can live in him and from him and for him because of Christ who lives in me. And if you've yet to place your faith in Christ, I'll say it again. Mankind has been put on notice. The resurrection is God's statement. There is a life to come. And either you will begin to enjoy that life now, or you will spend an eternity in separation from him. And I pray that if your heart is hearing truth this morning, and I know that it is, that you will see that what you are hearing is not a man's words. I was trying this morning to read more scripture than I typically read in a sermon so that you would see these are the words of God. 
and God's words would penetrate your heart, able to divide between soul and spirit, and that you would listen and you would say, Jesus, save me. Thank you for all that you've offered to me, for all that you've accomplished. Is it that simple? Yes. Thank you, God, that I don't have to live another second for my own self, but I can now live from you, Jesus. I receive you. I receive eternal life. Thank you. I'll close this in prayer. God, I thank you for all that you've done. It is beyond words. Anything that I would say, God, would not begin to express the glory of your person and the significance of your work. I can't begin to touch it. But God, you are able to speak into our hearts, our souls, our spirits. I pray we would hear your voice. If not at this time, even later today, tomorrow, that we would hear God as you speak to us and that we would respond to you in that simple childlike faith that says, thank you. And Father, I pray that for those of us, and I believe most of us in this room without doubt, that have placed our faith in Christ. God, that we would know that from this time on, it is no longer our life, it is yours. And we no longer live the life in this flesh from ourselves, but from you. And I pray, God, that we would be people who exalt the resurrected resurrected life of Jesus by living in dependence upon him, trusting him to be in us all that he is. I thank you, God, that we have hope because Jesus is alive. In Christ's name, amen.